The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Appreciate that good prayer, and I trust you'll continue to pray for me today as I try to, try to preach to you about a topic that I believe is very, very timely. Now, when I, admit, when I announce what the topic is, some of you are going to say, well, Okay, I can tune out. That doesn't apply to me. It only applies to young, single people. Okay? Well, that's not true. It applies to all of us, whether we're single, whether we're married, whether we're, uh, we've never been married, whether we've been married and are divorced, whether we've been married and have lost a spouse, or whether we're, uh, we've been married for 70 years or we've been married for two. It doesn't matter. This is a good message for all of us. And here's the question. This is the topic, okay? Now listen in closely because it's the, it's, it's the topic that's on every young person's mind and many older people's minds. And that's this. How do I find the right person? How do I find the right person? Okay? Now, now is that not... The, the topic that's on most young people, particularly their mind, sometimes the, the question is on the minds of those who are married in, in, the, in this sense is, did I really find the right person? <laughs> sometimes that's, that's what consumes us as a, as a society. It's, it's what Walt Disney made a career on. Isn't that right? Finding the right person, finding the sleeping beauty, finding the prince charming, and living happily ever after. Okay? Boy, that sounds good. I love going to Disney World. You go down the street and you see Cinderella's castle and you're reminded that, oh, you can be a scullery maid and end up being a princess. You can do that. And, and then when you are, you're living happily ever after. No more problems. Find the Prince Charming. Find the right person and it's all going to be just right. Isn't that what we're told today? Now let me, let me say this too before I go any farther because preachers are the best plagiarizers that there's ever been. I had a, I had a good friend who is a, a, a free will Baptist preacher actually. Uh, He's he passed on now, but he he lived up in Lamar County, and I heard him preach one of the best messages apart from the ending. <laughs> I didn't agree with his, his salvation theology, but other than that, I heard him preach one of the best messages I ever heard in my life back when I was in my uh, early 40s, I guess, maybe late 30s. And I, and I told him one time about 10 years later, I said, Brother, I've tried to preach that sermon at least five times since, since I heard you preach it. And he looked at me, and I, I thought he would say, you know, I didn't know what he'd say. I didn't know if he'd say, you're plagiarizing me or what. He said, brother, if my bullets are shooting your gun, have at it. <laughs> and that's, that's the way most preachers feel. So I say that to say that, that I've, I've been praying about this sermon for some time. And, I've, and so I, there's going to be several quotes in this sermon that I've heard other preachers use. So I'll try to give them uh, credit for it. But if I don't, don't hold it against me. If you hear them somewhere, that's... But listen... It, it's a topic that I believe that you need to hear. And the reason I believe you need to hear it is because I need to hear it. I need to know this sermon. I need to understand this topic. And, and let, me, let me also tell you this. 
Don't leave before the message is over. Because at the end of the message, I'm going to give you the answer about exactly how to find the right person. You, you will leave here today with every tool you need to find the right person, okay? I promise you, if you'll hang in there to the end, you'll get it. Okay, now, how do I find the right person? The world tells us, find the right person and all will be right with the world, right? Isn't that, isn't that it? Isn't that, the, isn't that what we hear? You know, it's the, it's the, <laughs> it's the sleepless in Seattle approach to life, Right? If I can just get to the Empire State Building before Tom Hanks leaves, I'll be fine. I'll find, I, find, I can, I've heard it, I hear it on the radio. I, I'm, I may be living in New York, he may be in Seattle, but I've found the right person. My life will be perfect. If I can find the right person, then all will be right with the world. So let me go ahead and spoil it for you right now, okay? That's the wrong question. Because, beloved, the problem is all will never be right with this world, okay? We live in a sin-cursed world. I don't have to turn there, and I'm not going to, but you know where I'm going to. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, For as by one man... Sin entered the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. You want to know what the problem with the world's thinking is and the problem with the world trying to get you to ask that question and focus upon that question? The problem is, is that the world is always wrong because the world is always wrong, <laughs> okay? You know, why is it that the world is always gets it wrong? Because the world is always wrong. It's, we're not living in a place that, that is uh, friendly to us as children of God. The world's answers always are the wrong answers. Money will bring you happiness. But yet Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. The world says, get money and you'll get happiness. Paul says, if you're trying to be rich, you'll fall into temptation. Well, then the world says this. You notice how the world always gets it wrong. Oh, well, then money's bad. Yeah, money's bad. Okay, so if money's not the answer, money's the problem, right? So let's become monks and let's, let's give away all our, our stuff and let's put on these brown robes and let's become nuns and put on our habits and go into nunneries and go into uh and into and into monasteries and let's let's get away from the world let's go out and become hermits like that hermit in the second century a.d that lived out of the desert well that's not what the bible says either it says in verse 10 for the love of money is the root of all evil we hear it all i've said it money's the root of all evil. money's not the root of all evil there's nothing wrong with money it's okay to make a living it's okay to, to try uh, in, in a godly way to, to provide. In fact, you're supposed to provide for your family. And in fact, if you do amass some wealth, it's not to spend upon your own lusts. It's to be able to support those around you that need help and to support the kingdom of God. See, the world always gets it wrong. It swings from one extreme to the other, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. If you love money, you'll have evil in your life. If you love charity... God may bless you with money in your life, okay? 
But, but there again, that's not, a, that's not a prosperity gospel either. That's wrong as well. Money will bring you happiness, you know. Proverbs tells us, Will thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches surely make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. I'll tell you what, it's been my experience, and especially in the last two or three years, that, you know, as our kids get older, there's more expenses, there's more problems, you know, as far as more, more things to pay for, more issues come up. But, you know, you kind of, you kind of look and you say, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I got my little nest egg here and I'm, I'm going to build up a little bit. I got a, you know, maybe I got a, maybe a couple of thousand dollars maybe built up. Maybe one time I had, one time I had $5,000 built up in a, in a little account that I was saying, now that's just, boy, whew, thank goodness. Okay. And would you believe that next week I got a bill for $3,100 for something I didn't expect it. And, and then the next week I get a bill for something else that's going to cost me going forward. So all that money I had built up, that four or $5,000 made itself wings and just flew away right there. Flew away in the mail. <laughs> mine, ours doesn't fly away like eagles. It flies away with the U.S. Postal Service. That's where mine goes. Power. You know, power, isn't that supposed to bring you fulfillment? Well, I, I don't... I tell you, power and authority <clears throat> is what the world says you need. There was a man named Haman who was a very important man in the court of King Ahasuerus. And he was invited to go to a dinner, to a banquet with the king and queen. And Mordecai had, uh, uh, had refused to bow to Haman when he passed by. He had refused to show deference to Haman and to the gods of the Babylonians. Haman in verse 9 of Esther chapter 5 says, When Haman went forth that day, joyful and with a glad heart because he'd been invited to go have dinner with the king. But notice then what happened. This is a man of great authority. You'd think he'd be satisfied, right? The world says authority and power will, will satisfy you. It will bring you happiness. Well, he was glad. He was joyful. He had a glad heart, but <laughs> that's the problem with power and authority and the world's answers. There's always a but in there. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. In the midst of the greatest accomplishment of his career, he was mad because this one Jew, Mordecai, wouldn't stand up, wouldn't give him the deference he deserved. And he goes on and he calls his friends home, and in verse 11 it says, Haman, when he got his friends and family together, told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. And then he said this, he said, I'm, I'm telling you all of what good things I've done and what's been done to me. And now, verse 12, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king under the banquet that she had prepared, but myself and tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. This man has made it. At this point, if, if, if the world is correct, then he's saying, hey, man, I don't care what Mordecai does. I don't care what anybody else does. I am a blessed man. I am satisfied. But notice what happened. Verse 13. Yet all this availeth me nothing. <laughs> How foolish is that? The world says power and authority makes all the difference, right? But for him, all this availeth me nothing. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. 
In other words, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's never going to be enough. The world's answer is always going to be wrong. You will never be rich enough. You'll never be powerful enough. You'll never have too much authority. It'll always be lacking. Okay? The world always asks the wrong question. And let me say again this morning on the topic of the question that we've asked, the world's question is the wrong question. How do I find the right person? That is the wrong question. So, so what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about finding the right person? Well, the answer is nothing. <laughs> now, it talks about following the will of God. It talks about doing, you know, seeking His guidance, certainly. But finding the right person, there's nothing in the Bible about that. But listen to me. It says everything about becoming the right person. Okay? It says everything about becoming and being the right person. So, so the wrong question is the topic of our sermon today. It's not how do I find the right person, but the right question is how do I become the right person? And I've heard, I've heard it put this way, and this is where I'm going to quote uh, a preacher named Andy Stanley that uh, is, I don't agree with on his theology. But, but he got it spot on on this. He calls this the right person myth. The right person myth. And this is what he says. And he's right. The myth that's out there is that once you find the right person, everything, including you, will be all right. It'll be just right. If you can just find the right person, everything, including yourself, will be just right. <laughs> now, now let me stop and give you a little, couple of little disclaimers, okay, about what I'm not saying this morning, what I, what I believe the Bible is not saying. This, as saying that the question, how do I find the right person, or talking about the right person myth, does not mean that God does not and will not lead us providentially in our relationships. He does. He's interested. Very much interested. And it also does not mean that there's not a, quote, right person out there for you. And that, by that I mean someone that God wants you to be with more than any other, okay? I do believe that God has a purpose for your life, uh, a, a desire for your life that involves you meeting and becoming a part of someone's life who will be the best for you. But, but this myth about there's one right person. Listen, I, I can't think. I, there, there are many people. There are many people. I'll put it this way. There are many people that buy into this myth. And this is what they do. They say, okay, if I find the right person, then everything will be just right in my life. And then they find who they think is the right person. And they marry that person. And then everything's not just right in their lives. And they say, well, I must not have found the right person. So I need to keep looking. <laughs> the next thing you know, people are breaking up marriages and people are breaking up relationships and families like that. And they're going to find the right person. Let me tell you, beloved, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Bible... I'm not saying there's not someone out there that would be the best for you if you're seeking the will of God. But let me say this to you. Wherever you are in your life, if you are married, then, then you have a duty and an obligation to make that work. 
And the right person is not going to make things all right for you, okay? The question you need to be asking, here again, I'm quoting Andy Stanley. <laughs> Got to give him credit. Um, this is the question you need to be asking. Not is she the right person or is he the right person, but the question is, am I the person that the person I'm looking for is looking for? <laughs> or if you're married already, am I the person that I married was hoping for? <laughs> you see, the focus in the Bible is always on you and not others. You know, he talks about the weaker brother, right? He tells you, you know, about the weaker brother. Might be you cause a weaker brother, don't cause a weaker brother to stumble. But it never presumes that you are the weaker brother. In fact, the teaching is that you're not supposed to be the weaker brother or the weaker sister. You're supposed to be the strong one in the relationship. That's why it says when someone offends you or when you offend them, whose duty is it? Okay, let's, let's just ask that question. Whose duty is it? If, if, if you offend me, by doing something or saying something, then whose duty is it to go and try to make that right? You say, well, you offended me. It's your duty. You know what the Bible says about that? It said, if, you, if your brother offends you, said, you go to him and tell him the fault between you and him, okay? And you try to make it right. And if you make it right, you've won your brother, okay? So, so I guess that means that if I have offended someone else, then it's their duty to come to me, right? Well, Luke tells us that there's a time when we go to the altar. And if you go to the altar and remember there that anyone has ought against you. In other words, I've offended somebody else, okay? And I remember, oh man, I've offended them. Then who, I guess it's their job, right? Their duty to come to me. No, he says, then you lay your offering down at the altar and you go to them. See what I'm saying? It's always your duty. You, you can sit, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves you. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. See there, wives, you're supposed to... Now, listen, he ain't talking to you husbands, okay? You just, you just listen, I know, teach your children, teach... Certainly that is... But, but he's not giving you that to, to use as a, as a mallet to, to beat her over the head with, so you're supposed to submit to me, submit to me, submit to me. That's a verse written to her to tell her to submit to you your job, now when you get done with your job, maybe you can focus on her job. You know what your job is, husbands? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself a point. I don't have time to preach on that this morning. I don't have time to preach on that this week, this, this year. I could start today until the Lord comes back and preach upon husbands' duties to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I wouldn't be done with it. You see, the Bible is speaking to you, child of God, and to me. Not, not to somebody else over there. It tells you about them, but it's talking about you. The, the thing is here, beloved, this, this, this sleepless in Seattle culture that we've got. This, I, I love, no, I'm not running this. I love that show. I mean, it's, it's, actually, it's one of my, I'm not a big chick flick guy, but it's one of my favorite chick flicks, okay? If you, want, you put it on, every time it comes on, I tend to sit there and watch it. You know, I like it. It's really cute. It's really good, okay? But this idea that if I can just make it, to the top of the Empire State Building before the elevators close and before Tom Hanks leaves and, and the little boy, you know, that, that, that disobeyed his father and flew from Seattle alone all the way across to New York City, okay? If I can just get there, everything's going to be just right. But see, here's the problem with that culture. 
The Sleepless in Seattle movie ends with them holding hands and walking onto the elevator and Jimmy Durante singing a Christmas song. Okay? But you know what they've got to do? They've got to go down the elevator. They've got to buy a ticket to go back to Seattle. She's got to close up shop or whatever she's doing, renting a, uh, a room in New York City. She's got to talk about... She's got to... She's got, they've got to... Tom Hanks, if he's doing what he's going to... Should be doing, he's got to spank that little boy, you know, for, for, for making him fly out there in the first place or discipline him somehow. And then they've got to figure out if she likes... Well, New York City weather is a lot different than Seattle weather, you know, and it's raining all the time out there. They got you got to see. Now, I'm not, I'm not downing it, okay? And it can be worked out, and it should be. I hope they got married, you know. I hope they're still living happily ever after in the in the theoretical world of the movies, okay? But but it's not all easy, you see. And everything was not just all right. And by the way, that's not a new story. That's not a new story at all. We, we read a book called Cinderella when we were kids, right? About a scullery maid who became a princess and lived happily ever after. You know, I've told you the story that I heard Elder Lucere Bradley tell one time about a young boy who was being asked about, or a young girl rather, than being asked about the Cinderella story at church. And one of the older men in the church was talking to her. Said, she said, I saw Cinderella. He said, oh yeah, Cinderella, I love that story. He said, said, they lived happily ever after, didn't they? And the little girl looked at me and said, oh, no, they didn't. They got married. And so, you know, so, see, you know, there, we laugh at that, and there's some truth to that. But there's some truth to the fact that marriage is not happily ever after. There is a happily ever after, but it's in the here and after, hereafter, okay? So, now, the right question is not how do I find the right person? The right question is how do I become the right person? How do I become the person that the person I'm looking for is looking for, okay? Or how do I become the person that the person I found who's now married to me was hoping for? And that's a relevant question and that's a question that the Bible answers for us. So let's talk about the right answer for the time that we have left. In John chapter 15... In verse 11, he makes this statement. And now, now, let's set this up, though, so you understand where we are in the life of Jesus Christ and of his disciples. You who are Bible readers understand that this chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are a continual sermon, if you will, and a high priestly prayer at the end, prayed by Jesus Christ, given by Jesus Christ, with, with the looming threat of Calvary. This is the last time he's really together, really teaching, really able to spend any quality time with his disciples and give them any guidance before he's crucified. So I would think that what he's saying here is probably very important, wouldn't you? I would, I would expect that the last words of Jesus, uh, if, if he knew, and see Jesus knowing all things, they didn't know, they didn't understand. He kept telling them, they didn't listen, they didn't believe it when they did listen. And so he knew that, that Calvary was looming on the horizon, that he was about to leave them, he's about to go away. And, and where he was going, he said, you can't go. What I'm about to do, you can't do, you can't go with me. Peter even said, oh Lord, you know, don't worry about these other yahoos over here. They're not going to fall. I'll be with you the whole time. I'll never leave you. I will die for you, Lord. And he said, 
Jesus looked at him and said, you know, Peter, Satan has, has desired you to sift you like wheat. And Satan's going to do that, isn't he? But I'm so thankful the next he said, but I have prayed for thee. You know the beginning of Peter's recovery, if you will? It's not when Peter turned his life and mind around, but it's when the Lord was praying for him. Before it ever happened, the Lord was praying for him. Isn't that something? Do you know that before you ever stumble and fall, Jesus knows it's coming. He knows it's going to happen and he is interceding for you. Now he's not praying. He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for the saints. But Jesus knew it was coming. And he gave us, you know, he gave that precious, what we use at funerals, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it are not so, I would have told you. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you. And, and, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. John chapter 14, precious, isn't it? That's wonderful. He's laying out the groundwork here. And in John chapter 15 and verse 11, he makes this statement. He says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Isn't the real question that we always ask not so much finding the right person. That's just a, that's just a subset of the overall question, which is how do I find happiness in this world? How do I find true happiness or joy in this world? And, 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 and the world says, find the right person, you'll find true happiness, right? Jesus said, I've just told you some things that are going to give you the ability to have not just joy, but full joy. That your joy might be full. And it's not just any kind of joy, it's my joy. I want my joy to remain in you that your joy might be full. <laughs> you know, I might stop right here just for a minute and talk about the joy of Christ. You know, the joy that we, we think about, we really don't talk about joy much in this world. We talk about, we talk about happiness, okay? Are you happy, okay? Are you are you experiencing true happiness in this life? Well, the problem with that, there's a big difference in happiness and joy. You know, I'm happy when I buy a new car. I'm not happy a week or two later when the new car smell starts to wear off. You know, I'm not happy with my car anymore because it blew a tire and I've got to buy new tires. Okay, we got a good deal on Ashley's little car. Real good deal when we bought it. Man, it was great. She's got those little tires that are that, they're that thick. You know what I'm talking about? Mackie knows. They're that thick, okay? They're two inches off the ground. You know how much them things cost to replace? About three times what it costs to replace, you know, my pickup tires, okay? So, you know, I was happy, and she's happy with that. She's still happy. I'm the one that's not happy with having to buy new tires. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, but, uh, but my point is, is we're, you know, Christmas morning, that's happiness, okay? Christmas evening, when you've broken the toy, that shows you how far happiness goes. It doesn't go very far. Happiness, think about it, it's, it's, it's from the root word hap. It has to do with your happenstance. It has to do with the circumstances. Joy is something different. He says, I want my joy to remain in you. Now, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, Jesus tells us just a little something about his, his joy. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, not the happiness, there was no happiness in the circumstances of Calvary. There was nothing about that that was fun. There was nothing about that that was enjoyable. It wasn't comparable to a Disney World experience or anything else. Say, well, I stood in line, but then it was great at the end. No, let me tell you, it's not anywhere close. There was no happiness in Calvary, but there was joy set before him. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And there were some things associated with the cross that he despised, despising the shame. You know, it was a shameful thing for the Son of Man to have to go to Calvary. It, it, all these pretty pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross, you, you banish them from your mind. We're told in Isaiah 54, I believe it is, that his visage was so marred more than any man. You, you couldn't tell who he was by looking at him on the cross. They plucked his beard out. Can you imagine the swelling and the redness and the, and the bleeding and the problem, the, the crown of thorns on his head that were not just little stickers, beloved. They were thorns. They were, that, they were stuck down in his brow and, it, and, and blood poured down his face and no doubt ran into his eyes and he... He was stripped naked. The Son of Man, God Himself, was stripped naked before the world. And they, they gambled for the robe that He wore at the feet of the cross. And all of His bones were exposed. He said, you could count my bones. He said, you could tell them. You know, He experienced physically things that no other man could have endured. Because He wasn't able to die. They could not kill Him. They took His life. I understand that. They killed Him. But only when, he's, when he submitted himself to be killed, you see. <clears throat> All those pictures, those pretty pictures of Calvary. Listen, there was shame in Calvary. There was shame. Jesus, do you understand that Jesus experienced the nightmare that most of us have from time to time? You know that nightmare, showing up at work naked or showing up. You know, in front of your friends with no clothes. You know, you're always, that's, that's the terror people have, the fear, oh, I'm, I'm fixing to make a speech and I'm standing up here with no clothes on, you know. So, I mean, that's, the, you know, Jesus experienced that. Jesus experienced that worst nightmare that you can think of. He experienced it. <clears throat> but it says there was joy. And that's the joy that Jesus is talking about. His joy, my, he said, I want my joy to remain in you. The joy that looks past circumstances. The joy that does not find its experience in this life. Because his joy was not in the cross. His joy was looking through the cross and enduring the cross because he's about to sit down at the right hand of his Father on high. He says, I'm telling you some things that will give you joy and it will not be just any kind of joy. It'll be my joy and it will be full. Now, what is it he's told us? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is a husbandman. Okay, Jesus is telling us he's the vine. And, and every branch, there's branches on this vine. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that he may bring more, forth more fruit. He's talking to us about a farming situation he's got you know the vines of the the grape vines and and those kinds of things we don't have really have many grapes right here I, muscadines and scuppernon vines we see those all the time he's saying i'm like that vine uh several years ago when when uncle mac and aunt lorraine uh moved into mommy cool's house um uh, one of the first things they did 
and I don't remember if it's Brother Mackey or Aunt Lorraine, they went in and they cut down. My grandmother had this muscadine vine there, or scuppernine, I don't know which one's which, scuppernine vine, I guess, right there in the backyard, and it had three fence posts and some wire, and it, boy, it was this big old pretty vine, you know, so pretty and all this. And, and they went in there and whacked it off, you know, cut it down. What are they doing that for? You know, it's kind of, you know, boy, it don't look, it looks ugly down to the roots and all. But, but here's what happened. It's more pretty, it's more beautiful today than it was before because they pruned it back, they cut it back, and the roots and the vine itself didn't die. Now all the branches left, okay? But see, there are branches on the vine. The vine is alive and of itself it's living because it's attached to the roots and the branches. But if you go in there and cut the branches off, they're not going to live very long. They're going to turn dark and dead. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. And, and sometimes, just like that, the husbandman, the farmer, comes in and prunes it down and cuts it back. And the purpose of the cutting and the pruning is to make it bring forth more fruit, by the way. Now, notice in verse 4, okay? It's real important here. Abide in me and I in you. Okay? Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. Abide in me. He goes on to say in verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing okay abide listen to this it means to remain of course to, to abide in reference in reference to a place it means to sojourn or to tarry not to depart to continue to be present to be held to be kept continually okay that's what it means in regard to a place now in reference to time to continue to be to continue to exist not to perish to endure, to survive, okay? In reference to a state or a condition that you're in, to remain as one, to remain like you are, not to become another or different, and to await for one, to, to continue to be what you are. You see, think about all of that in regard to Jesus, in regard to abiding in Him. Physically, you need to stay where you are. In time, you don't need to leave. You need to understand that by doing that, you'll abide. And in, in your condition that you're in, you need to continue to be like you are when you are abiding and living with Jesus. And notice what he says. If you abide in me, then you'll bring forth much fruit. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you'll learn how to be a fruit bearer. You'll, you'll, you'll bring forth much fruit. If you, if you just get educated enough to that. No, he said the only way you're going to bring forth fruit is not by becoming more grounded and what uh, more knowledgeable about the scriptures even. It's not, now that, that, that's a way we abide in him, but it's not the knowledge that brings us to where we are. It's the abiding, you see. We're going to bring forth fruit not because we've learned to be fruit bearers, but because we're following him. We are abiding in Jesus. You know, he never, Jesus never said, he, he didn't call us to pray to him. He didn't call us to, to negotiate with him. He didn't call us to, to, to do anything other than follow him. Follow him. What did Matthew say? 
Take up your cross and follow me. Okay? That involves praying. That involves talking to I get that. But the key to it is following him. Okay? Now, Jesus will help you not find the right person, but become the right person. Okay? And that's the key to the Christian experience. That's the key to our discipleship walk, is becoming the person that Jesus intends for us to be, you see. And by becoming the person that Jesus intends for us to be, you'll also become the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. You see there? Isn't that great? I heard, I heard another preacher, I believe, I can't remember it. I heard a preacher say that following Jesus, okay, following Jesus will make your life better, but it will also make you better at life. That's pretty good, isn't it? Wish I had thought of that. But it's true. Following Jesus will make you the person that you need to be. And, and let me, okay, now let me, let me, okay. Here's the commandment, okay? Very, um, very important. This is, this is what it takes, okay? He said in verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be. So what is it that I need to do? What is it that... What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to abide in Him? Look in verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be to my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Okay? Continue ye in my love. Here's a little hint to what He's going to get to. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might be remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now verse 12, this is my commandment. Okay, here it comes. What is it that you need to do? What is it that we need to do in order to abide in Him? This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Wow. At the, at, at the same time, it's so simple. But it's also so hard to do. Okay? But it's simple because, you know, you don't have to worry about... Under the law, they had all these commandments. When they came to church, they had to, they had to do certain things. They had to wash their hands. They had to be in a certain condition. They had to sacrifice. You don't have to do all that anymore. Okay? The bottom line is, is that all the law is summed up in this. All the law that you have to follow is summed up right here. Love one another as I have loved you. Back in John chapter 13 and verse 34, he said, A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another. Okay? As I have loved you that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Simple, clear commandment. No more, no less. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, love and do as thou wilt. In other words, love and do what you want to. When you think about that, if you love one another like Christ loved you, do what you want to. So what's the commandment? How should I treat them? Just love them. And do whatever you want to in accordance with that love, you see. That means you're not going to mess them up. You're not going to get mad at them when they say something they shouldn't. When they don't do something you think they should. Just love them and then you do however you want to. Because if you're loving them, you're going to do right by them. You see? That's the underlying 
thought here, that's the underlying principle, is that Jesus' love should be our guide. And this isn't a statement of be more loving. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying be sweeter in your life. It's saying love as Christ loved, love, Jesus says, as I love. And the only way we can see that love clearly is through the light of the cross. Okay? The light of the cross. They didn't, they didn't get it then. They couldn't understand it then like they could understand it after Calvary and the resurrection. Oh, but Paul got it, didn't he? Paul figured it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not charity or love, I'm as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. He goes on to describe that love as self uh, is seeking is not self-seeking and not self-serving, but is serving the other person. Love is not a feeling, beloved. It's not that pitter-pat goes my heart like the Hallmark Channel talks about, okay? And it's snowing always, too, by the way, in all those movies. You ever notice that? Anyway, you've got to have snow in a Hallmark movie. But be that, that's not what it's about, okay? It's about acting and doing. Loving is a, is a way of life and living. Loving is a way of living. Look what Jesus did for us, okay? Look how Jesus loved us. He, he didn't wait until we were good enough. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13 says, And you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, <laughs> hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Look in, look in Romans chapter 5. Look at this. Romans chapter 5, listen to what he says, verse 8. He says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he didn't, he didn't wait till we were good enough. He didn't say, we got to be good enough in order for me to love you. He said, when you were still a sinner... I loved you and I loved you so much that I sent my son to die for you. He didn't wait until we loved him enough, did he? Look at verse 10 here in Romans 5. For if when we were enemies, enemies don't love those that they hate, they, that, they, that are their enemies, do they? They hate them. He didn't wait until we loved him enough in order to reconcile us. He says when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He didn't wait until we could pay him enough, did he? Look at verse 12 of Romans 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We're all sinners. We owe a debt that we could not pay. But look at verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment, one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. He tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the water. He that hath no money, buy and eat. You see, he didn't wait till we got good enough. He didn't wait till we loved him enough. He didn't wait until we could pay him enough. His salvation and his love is a free gift to us. And you know, even unlike the world, the world says you still got to take it. You still got to. No, listen, there's no residual clause in the contract of salvation that says, oh, by the way, you still owe me this. Okay? There's no residual. He either, he either died and paid the debt 
or he didn't. And I believe he did, beloved. Praise God for that. Now, as our time is about gone, I told you that by the end of this sermon, I would tell you exactly how to find the right person. Exactly where he can be found. Exactly what it takes to find him. And here is the good news. Philippians chapter 4. You might turn there as we look. You have, if you're here this morning and you have a heart for Jesus Christ, you have found yourself to be a sinner and you're not finding too true happiness in this world. You're struggling with this idea that the world says of finding the right person, therefore I can find happiness. But you see in Christ a Savior that paid the sin debt for you. Guess what? You've already found the right person. Because Jesus Christ is that right person. And every other circumstance pales in comparison with understanding that Jesus is the right person. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 verse 11, he said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And he goes on to describe it. He said, I know how to be abased, how to abound. Have you ever been abased? I have. But especially, think about, I think about, we're thinking about this in context of finding your relationships. I can remember times in my seeking that right person, <laughs> seeking a relationship where I was abased. I was rejected. I was down and out, you know. And, and, and quite honestly, it wasn't until I got to the point where I was satisfied, I was content. Maybe I'll not ever find somebody that the Lord blessed me with a beautiful, wonderful wife that I have. But be that as it may, this ain't about my experience. My point is this, is we need to be content with Jesus and be able to be abased, be able to understand that in, in, in times of abasement, in times of abounding, everywhere and in all things, I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And look at verse 13. You remember, you remember in chapter 15, he says, without me, you can do nothing. Look at verse 13 of Philippians 4. I can do all things. Through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That sounds like what the world's saying about find the right person and everything will be all right. <laughs> They're wrong about that in this life. But let me tell you from a spiritual standpoint, if, if the Lord has found you, and by the way, he wasn't lost, so you don't have to find him. You're the one that was lost, okay? If you, the Lord has found you, if you find yourself in the, in the clutches of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the, in, the, in, the, in the blessing of His presence, then you have found the right person and this right person will make all things all right. Because <laughs> you can do all things with Him. You can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth you. He tells us in, in Colossians chapter 2, I want you to listen to this right here. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Listen to what He says. Beware. Okay, this is a good summary of what we've been talking about this morning, okay? Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Don't let anybody tell you in this sleepless in Seattle culture that you've got to find the right person in order to be happy, okay? Don't let that lie uh, permeate your life. Don't let that lie spoil you, as he says here. That's philosophy. That's vain deceit. That's the rudiments of this world. It's not after Christ. For in Him, verse 9, 
dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know, I, I know I, I, I was seeking a wife. I know many of you are seeking wives and husbands and, and that relationship. But let me tell you something. I love my wife. But if I have a vision of Christ, like I should have the vision of Christ, then, then even the relationship with my wife should pale in comparison with my devotion and my love to the one who has, has the fullness of the Godhead bodily. My goodness. There's no one in this building that I would seek after besides her except the Lord Jesus Christ walk in. And then let me tell you, and I'm thankful that I know her well enough to know that she'd be right there holding my hand running to him. But even if she wouldn't, even if she didn't, even if she didn't care, if the Lord Jesus walked in and I saw the fullness of the Godhead bodily, I don't care who you are, I don't care how much I love you, I love him more. Okay, He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him. You ever heard people say, I just don't feel fulfilled, I just don't feel complete. That's because you don't have your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ like you should. Now, I've been there. I'm, I'm not. When I point one finger there, there's three pointing back at me, okay? Have your eyes on Jesus. You are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, last thing, and I'll let you go. I always hear about this Prince Charming, okay? You want a Prince Charming? Listen, listen to this. And, and skipping down to verse 13. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. There's never been a sleeping beauty and a, who, who had a Prince Charming come in that was greater than this. Let me tell you, you were not just a sleeping beauty. You were dead in trespasses and in sins. And your Prince Charming, capital P, capital C, Prince Charming, came along and, he, and he, he, you were dead in the sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive. He quickened you together with Him. He blotted out the charges that were against you. And verse 15, having spoken Spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. And he, he came riding up on his white horse. And he had all the armor that he needed, all the weaponry that he needed. And he went out and he slew the dragon and he killed the serpent. And he did, he spoiled principalities and powers. And he rode off with the bride, with the princess. Praise God, that is your Jesus Christ. Amen. He's the one that we should be seeking. How do I find the right person? He's the right person. He's the only person that you need in your life. And when you are content in Him and complete in Him, all these other blessings, the relationships will get right. Okay? He is the one whom when we seek Him like we should, when we find the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ, all these other things will be all right. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.